Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambandhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambandhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang gachami, dhammang saranang gachami, sangang saranang gachami Today we begin the first of our Sutta Exploration Series. The way for us to find our way out through the help of the suttas. And in beginning, I ask that much like it is with sitting meditation or meditation proper, the position of the mind is absolutely essential. That is, for it to be adequate, appropriate, in looking at, studying, going over, exploring, reading, listening to the suttas. Suttas are not to be read, listened to, talked about, translated, or be heard the way one would, let's say, a newspaper, a news article, a novel, some research paper. That's not how we approach the suttas. In order for us to gain the most of it, that is, so being pure in our approach, in our intentions, is very important. Much like any receptacle a cup or a jar, a bowl, anything that has something already in it. If we use that receptacle to fill it up with something, something new, then we won't be doing it any justice, this something new. If we have 
residual stuff in the bowl, in the receptacle, the cup, the jar, whatever. So my encouragement to you is whenever you approach in your studies of Lord Buddha's teachings, try to empty out as much as possible from the stuff that have been gathered, even expectations as to what this sutta or that sutta might be able to do for you. And on that note, suttas can and do bring about the experience of Nibbana. It's not the suttas, the word, printed word or the digital form of the, of the word that does that, but it is the combination of all these factors coming together. But in order for that to take place, the mind, first of all, has to be, the heart has to be in the right place. Therefore, the suttas deserve to be treated with special reverence and respect. In the Anguttara Nikaya, when he is asked by Venerable Kimbila, Lord Buddha turns to him and says, in regards to why does the Dhamma, the dispensation of Lord Buddha, die out so quickly after the death of the Buddha? The Buddha lists several things. He says, when bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, lay male and female disciples, when they stop venerating, respecting, revering the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the training, the importance of diligence, the importance of samadhi. But specifically here, I want to mention the part about the Dhamma. It is there. So we need to take care of them, the words and the suttas. Not to worship them, but to have a sense of reverence towards what they might have brought to us and for us through the course of centuries. And in order for us to maintain that, and benefit from that, the repetitions become very important, for which the Buddha spent extra amount of energy in repeating, sometimes entire segments, 
that could go on for several paragraphs, if, if not pages. Repeating what he said in the beginning, in the middle, the body of the sutta, if you will, and then at the end, because he's trying to nail it. He's trying to hammer it in. And the story element is usually what the mind likes to hear. There's nothing wrong with that. However, we need to always be looking at how is this sutta able to help me at this moment in my life, in my progress. So the sutta that uh, I wanted us to go over is the Bhatta Vinita Sutta, uh, the relay of chariots or relay chariots in English. It's from the middle length discourses, which is the Majjhimanikaya Sutta number 24. We see how Lord Buddha is asking a question about his homeland, which is away from um, where he was staying at. And Lord Buddha was uh, staying at the time in a place called Savati, today's Shravasti in India at the famous Anantapindika Monastery in Jeta's Grove, where he spent about 20, 25 uh, vasas or rains retreats of 25 years. And he inquires about his homeland and who is the foremost when it comes to the Dhamma, within the bhikkhus, there in Kapilavatu, his kingdom, his father's kingdom. And without speaking too much on this at this point, I'd like us to start. And as I mentioned, um, we do have uh, the recordings that I've made in the past of this sutta which we will be playing. Um, and then what I will do is I will pause and address whatever um, comments that need to be made and about the sutta and uh, I would like to see if we can um, leave the questions at the end once the sutta uh, is done. Um, so that I may address those questions after. However, if you feel that it is very pertinent um, for us to address it right there on the spot while the segment is being read, then please um, do uh, let me know, raise your hand, etc.
So let us begin. Adha Vinita Sutta, the relay chariots. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel's sanctuary. Then a number of bhikkhus from the Blessed One's native land, who had spent the rains there, went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. The Blessed One asked them, bhikkhus, who in my native land is esteemed by the bhikkhus there, by his companions in the holy life, in this way? Having few wishes himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on fewness of wishes. Content himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on contentment. Secluded himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on seclusion. Aloof from society himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on aloofness from society. Energetic himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on arousing energy. Attained to virtue himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of virtue. Attained to collectedness of mind himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of collectedness of mind. Attained to wisdom himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of wisdom. Attained to deliverance himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of deliverance. Attained to the knowledge and vision of deliverance himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of the knowledge and vision of deliverance. He is one who advises, informs. Here the Buddha is laying out the task that is to be taken up by anyone who's gone forth by talking about the virtue, the, uh, the practice, the focus on attaining knowledge and vision, which will come up later on in the conversation between the two protagonists, if you will, which uh, by the way, that is the place where uh, I had to mention earlier, uh, where this whole scene to be played out later uh, will be taking place in Savati. Here, it's the Buddha is in Rajagha, where we have the famous Vulture's Peak, uh, Gidja Peaks, where the Buddha is asking, which is closer to Kapilavatu, the Buddha's kingdom. So you had groups of monks who had come from Kapilavatu, and the Buddha is addressing them, and he's curious to know who in his native land is known as foremost in these capacities of a bhikkhu, which are necessary in order for them to be on the path, to be on the path that leads to the apex of the holy life. So these things will come up later on. Uh, which we will see being asked by Venerable Sariputta uh, later from uh, Venerable Punna Mantaniputta.
instructs, urges, rouses, and encourages his companions in the holy life. Venerable Sir, the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta is so esteemed in the Blessed One's native land by the bhikkhus there, by his companions in the holy life. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Sariputta was seated near the Blessed One. Then it occurred to the Venerable Sariputta, it is a gain for the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta. It is a great gain for him that his wise companions in the holy life praise him point by point in the teacher's presence. Perhaps sometime or other we might meet the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta and have some conversation with him. Then a little bit of a background story of Venerable Punna Mantaniputta. You might have heard about the five original disciples, students of Lord Buddha, the first of whom who attained right view and saw with the eye of Dhamma, attaining Sotapanna stage, stream entry, was Venerable Kondanya. And he was the eldest, Bhikkhu. And he became Bhikkhu then and there. This is when the Buddha first taught the Dhamma to the five disciples. And soon after, Venerable Kondanya also became an Arahant. Now, many people forget to consider that Venerable uh, Kondanya was also among the um, astrologers, if you will, scholars who had come to the court of King Sudodana. When um, Siddhartha Gautama, later the Buddha, was uh, born. And by the way, he uh, later on became Kondanya, Venerable Kondanya, he was the youngest among all these scholars who were masters of the Vedas. And they were able to read the 32 marks of a superior person, Sapurisa. And as you know the story, uh, as most of you might know it, when King Sudodana, Siddhartha's father, showed the child, the infant Siddhartha, to these seers to see as to what his future might be of this prince. And obviously as a father, as a, as a king, of a, you know, the head, the leader of a, of a country or a kingdom, it's not that big of a kingdom, might as well, you know, <laughs> we have to admit, but still a kingdom nevertheless. Wanted to hear that their response would be, oh, Lord, he's going to be a wheel-turning monarch or Chakavatin who lives for a long time and rules uh, and expands the kingdom, etc. But each of these seers, they did say that. 
that he's going to be a great king, etc. But they also added a caveat. They also added option two. They said, however, Lord, if he decides to go forth and leave the court, he will be the greatest. He will be a Buddha. Now, each of these seers had mentioned this, and the king was getting more and more restless and agitated by that. And when it came to turn for Kondanya, who happened to be the very youngest among them, I think he wasn't even like 18 at the time. He was the only one who unequivocally mentioned no, he said. He will not become a wheel-turning monarch. He will have nothing to do with the life of a layman. When the time comes, he will walk out and he will go forth and he will become the Buddha. He was the only one who said that with that level of confidence. Now, having seen this, Kondanya later on goes and um, to the Himalayas. But before he does so, he goes to his sister, Mantani, who I believe was uh, pregnant, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or, or had just had a child. That child was later on going to be Venerable Punna Mantani Putta. Now, why does he go there? He realizes, Kondanya realizes that here's a great opportunity. We are going to have um, among us a Buddha which, who, who doesn't come around that often. So we must be prepared. So he wants to prepare himself by going off into the Himalayas to meditate, to prepare himself so that he could become a, a student of Lord Buddha, the teacher, when the time comes. And he asks his sister and his friends to come and let him know when the, Lord, when the, king, when the prince, rather, Siddhartha, leaves the court. Later on, when he does find out he is one of those five who comes and joins Siddhartha after he leaves the court. Now, why do I mention Venerable Kondanya that often? Because Venerable Kondanya, as I mentioned, he was the first one to see the Dhamma when it was first taught in the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana Sutta. setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, which we see in the Sanyukta Nikaya, where the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths for the first time. After Venerable Kondanya had attained Arahantship, which took place when the Buddha taught the Anattalakkana Sutta, approximately a week after teaching the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana, he goes to Kapilavattu, the Buddha's hometown, where he was from also. And there, Punna is now grown up. And he was already being taught by him here and there in the past through his mother. 
So he ordains him, his nephew, and his nephew becomes an arahant, Venerable Punna Mantani Putta. And he also is so influential that he gathers around him uh, 500 bhikkhus. And, and by the way, these numbers, uh, they're just like simplifications. They might have been 500, they might have been less than 500, they might have been a little bit above, but in those days, 500, the number itself, represented a large group of people, basically. So he had taught them the Dasa Katavatuni uh, from the Patama Katavatu Sutta, which we get from the Anguttara Nikaya, on the ten forms of proper speech to these bhikkhus. He taught them the ten forms of proper speech with the help of which they all became arahants. <laughs> so he urged them to go ahead and see the teacher in person, whom he hadn't, to my understanding, he himself, he had not seen the Lord Buddha. So he urges his students, now arahants, to go and see the teacher. And they are there. Some of them are there with the Buddha, as the Buddha is asking, them as to who is the most prominent teacher in my uh, homeland in Kapilavatu. And they all say it's Venerable Punna Mantani Putta. And by the way, the suffix Putta means the son of, the son of. Mantani is the mother. So they would always use, typically would use the mother's name and then they would put at the end, putta. So, uh, Sari Putta was the son of Sari. Mantani Putta was the son of Mantani, which we will see how the story unfolds where these two meet in Savati. When the Blessed One had stayed at Rajagha as long as he chose, he set out to wander by stages to Savati. Wandering by stages, he eventually arrived at Savati, and there he lived in Jeta's Grove, Anathapindika's park. The Venerable Punna Mantaniputta heard, the Blessed One has arrived at Savati and is living in Jeta's Grove, Anathapindika's park. Then the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta set his resting place in order and taking his outer robe and bowl, set out to wander by stages to Savati. Wandering by stages, he eventually arrived at Savati and went to Jeta's Grove, Anathapindika's park to see the Blessed One. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he sat down at one side and the Blessed One instructed, urged, roused, and encouraged him with talk on the Dhamma. Then the Venerable Bhunna Mantaniputta instructed, urged, roused, and encouraged by the Blessed One's talk on the Dhamma, delighting and rejoicing in the Blessed One's words, rose from his seat 
and after paying homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he went to the blind man's grove for the day's abiding. He was an arahant. Yet we see how the Dhamma, hearing the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma, being exposed to it, has the refreshing impact. One can never have enough of it, in a sense. Because the Arahant still has to deal with the five aggregates. It is a burden living on this planet for the Arahant. So they have to put up with the body, they have to put up with, in their case, um, the way they see the body as this repulsive concoction of things happening in which they have to take care of. When all they have to do, they want to do is sit in Nirodha Samapati, which is the cessation of feeling and perception, and to really be surrounded by those individuals who are also on that level. So here's an opportunity, so long as the person's teacher is alive, in this case, Lord Buddha himself, that many monks would have taken many days, weeks, um, to walk, to come to, to, um, to where the Buddha was staying. And usually the news as to where the Buddha might have been at that time might not have been that correct because news would travel slow in some cases. And there was no cell phones, no nothing for you to guarantee that he's there. So many times these uh, traveling bhikkhus would get to their destination, but the teacher would not be there. So we're looking at, you know, rural India. Um, there were no roads proper, uh, like we understand, understand them today. And the bhikkhu also had to think about the food. So it must have been an arduous journey, but it's all well worth it. So that's what causes a person to feel rejuvenated when they are exposed to the Dhamma. Not that they are confused or they're uh, lacking in their attainment. So we need to also be uh, aware of the fact that Punna Mantani Putta also was acknowledged by Lord Buddha to be the foremost in his preaching, in his uh, teaching ability of the Dhamma. Dhammadinna was the bhikkhuni version of him. And Chitta, the lay householder, was the lay male disciple version of that capacity to be able to teach fluidly the Dhamma. 
removing any knots that might be there for the listener. So here's for the first time, Venerable Sariputta heard about Venerable Putta, but he has never seen him. They've never met. So let's continue. A certain bhikkhu went to the Venerable Sariputta and said to him, Friend Sariputta, the bhikkhu Punna Mantaniputta, of whom you have always spoken highly, has just been instructed, urged, roused, and encouraged by the Blessed One with talk on the Dhamma. After delighting and rejoicing in the Blessed One's words, he rose from his seat and after paying homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he has gone to the blind man's grove for the day's abiding. And sometimes people have wondered, what does that mean, keeping him on his right? The person in those days, uh, when they would meet a teacher, uh, a holy person, um, whether they're a king or a lowly, uh, ordinary uh, human being, or even devas, actually, they, especially at the end of the meeting, they would circumambulate, they would walk around that uh, person, that teacher. That tradition has been kept to this day. When you go to, for example, chaitiyas or uh, stupas, uh, pagodas, where there are relics um, of teachers, maybe even uh, the arahants and even maybe Lord Buddha's relics, you, on, especially on pilgrimages, you will see how people would go around. That is what is meant here, keeping him on his right, because it was disrespectful to walk with your back to the teacher. Um, so, yeah. Then the Venerable Sariputta quickly picked up a mat and followed close behind the Venerable Mpunna Mantaniputta. You can almost sense how excited he is. It's almost like a child who just saw Santa Claus coming off the sled. He's like so eager, but then I would love for you to visualize. It's, it's a hilly area. It does have flat areas too, Savati, but it's, it's windy. And Sariputta is holding himself back from just rushing in and sitting down and having a chit-chat on the Dhamma with Venerable Punna Mantani Putta. I mean, come on, his, his companions in the holy life have constantly said so many good things about him. Who is this guy? It's like, I want to meet him. In his head inside. Then the Venerable Punna Mantani Putta entered the blind man's grove and sat down for the day's abiding at the root of a tree. The Venerable Sariputta also entered the blind man's grove and sat down for the day's abiding at the root of a tree. Then, when it was evening, the Venerable Sariputta rose from meditation, went to the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta and exchanged greetings with him. Here we see another example of preparing the mind. Now they didn't have to worry about this because they were already arahants. 
In life, when we come across something that we wanted or we're eager to taste, to experience, with the six senses, oftentimes the first thing that goes out the window is the calm, tranquil mind. We no longer are equanimous. So as practitioners, especially, who have tasted equanimity, upekka, it's essential for us to always be cognizant of this fact that it is something that we have to keep an eye out for and always improve. It was the easiest thing for Venerable Sariputta, instead of just keeping that safe distance from Venerable Kunnamantani Putta, as he was going up and down the hills and he was just keeping sight so that he doesn't lose him of his head, his bald head. He did not want to interfere, shorten the distance even. Anyone else might have actually rushed, greeted him and said, uh, Venerable, I am Sariputta. Welcome. I would like to have a discussion with you on the Dhamma. But that's not what the chief disciple did. Because he was also observing and wanting to see why the Buddha calls him the foremost. Why his companions in the holy life call him the foremost. And there's a wonderful thing that happens when one observes a noble disciple, especially someone of that caliber, move and do things that are so seemingly banal. Especially in this case where he's going about on alms round in the village and walking around and then going and sitting under a tree and meditating. So they both did what we were doing earlier before to began, preparing the mind. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side and said to the venerable Punna Mantani Buddha, is the holy life lived under our blessed one, friend? Yes, friend. But friend, is it for the sake of purification of virtue that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then when Venerable Sariputta asks, is the holy life lived under our teacher, Lord Buddha? Obviously, Venerable Sariputta is asking knowing full fact that it, you know, the answer to this, of course, it is lived. But in asking Venerable Punna Mantaniputta, he also wants to see for himself what his position is on the other teachers and teachings, contemporary teachers that were there, who were also promoting different sorts of holy life, in a sense, different paths of living the holy life, which did not have right view. So first, Venerable Sariputta wants to establish a, a common ground because he's testing him. 
He didn't believe anything, Venerable Sariputta. When you study his life, he never believed anything that came out of his teacher's mouth. And here we see the perfect evidence of that. He wants to go on his own, test it out, to see who is Venerable Kunda Mantani Putta. Let's start with, okay, what is your take on the teaching? Does it lead to the apex of the holy life? Okay. Second, what's his view on virtue, which is sila? So here we're going to see the set of seven purifications that will be repeated. Will come, you know, they will go through one at a time. So Venerable Sariputta is going to ask one at a time, point by point. And these seven, I would like you to have in the back of your mind as the ladder, the step-by-step guide and process that a meditator must go through step by step. So let's explore some more. Is it for the sake of purification of mind that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification of view that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by overcoming doubt that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of the way that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? No, friend. Friend, when asked, but friend, is it for the sake of purification of virtue that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification of mind that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification of you that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? Your response was, no, friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification by overcoming doubt that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You responded, no, friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You responded, no, friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of the way that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You responded, no friend. When asked, then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision that the holy life is lived under the blessed one? You responded, no friend. 
For the sake of what, then, friend, is the holy life lived under the Blessed One? Friend, it is for the sake of final Nibbana, without clinging, that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. You can tell of the repetition. Uh, that can be tedious, especially when um, we're reading through the suttas and we want to get to the crux of it. For some reason, our minds don't like repetitions. We would just want to go to the juice of it. And as you noticed, I was kind of pausing there when I was recording this at the time, uh, because I was using several sources and all these sources, unfortunately, they have a lot of dot, dot, dots for the repetitions. They would just have one or two words and then the reader is supposed to go ahead and figure the rest of it out. And this is why repetitions are extremely important. So no room for dot, dot, dots because these repetitions will help the person to really develop in their understanding instead of doing it or going over it just on a superficial level. Here we see each of these questions that are being posed by Venerable Sariputta to Venerable Punnamantaniputta. He's saying no. Now the person immediately looking at it superficially would say, oh, so there's a disagreement. So oftentimes we forget to look at the whole process. This is something that I've mentioned several times to avoid looking at the content of things. This is what happened yesterday. And because of that, I'm feeling this way today. Why did this thing happen? Why do these things happen, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Those things are not important in their localized state as this phenomena, as this thing. But when we pull a bit back and look at the whole picture, there's a better understanding. So when you see a disciple, a chief disciple at that, asking such critical questions, he is also preparing the ground for better understanding for later generations, including his own, his own students, because in those days there was no writing. Let's remember that. For about four, 500 years, at least, there were no uh, writing of the suttas. They were all carried through repetitions, through or rather to, uh, um, they would just say the words, recite it, in fact, there was a time where each vihara or each monastery had a library monk, reciting monk, or memory monk, sometimes they're called. So they had learned the suttas by heart, in some cases, even the commentaries by heart. Imagine all the nikayas are in their mind. So the other monks would go and, and research, when they were doing a research or understanding a sutta, they, and they did not know or forgotten the sutta, they would go to this person. 
So when you have a formula like this, one at a time, each one leading to the next, you almost have this stair step or rung by rung by rung levels, stages that are clearly delineating for later uh, scholars as well as practitioners to know what comes first. See, if you do not have the right view, you will not be able to know what is the right path. The Patipada. What is the right path, he asks. What is not the right path? So knowing what is and what is not the path, that's the culmination of the Lord Buddha's teaching, right? And the Venerable says, no. Let's explore some more. But friend, is purification of virtue finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification of mind finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification of view finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification by overcoming doubt finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification by knowledge and vision of the way finally bana without clinging? No, friend. Then is purification by knowledge and vision finally bana without clinging? No, friend. But friend, is final Nibbana without clinging to be attained without these states? No, friend. This is interesting. Because when you look at it segment by segment as its own truth, isolated, independent from all that came before, prior to it, and all that will come after it, then it's absolutely no. It is not the path. So the purification, whether it's by view or virtue, etc., is just part of the process, to put it simplified. But they cannot be isolated from each other as this is the path, this is it. Just get this, just get this purification level of understanding. Sometimes individuals experience the first jhana, for example, or the fourth or the fifth or whatever. And they pitch a tent there. In fact, they start constructing a house there. This, that's it, we're, we're, got, we're good, we're, we, we got it. This is a remedy for that. And there's, there's other suttas course, many suttas that help to demolish that wrong view. But even if a person has right view, but attaches themselves to it with clinging, if you remember, the question itself here is through non-clinging, non-clinging, non-clinging. Anupada, the Pali word for it is upadana, anupada. The opposite. 
When a person attaches to that view, that becomes wrong view. When a person attaches to the purification by virtue and says, this is it, this is it. Well, guess what? They miss the boat because they're not seeing its connection to the others, to the other factors that are being laid out. So we have to look at the whole process together, not separate, each part being extremely important that leads us to the next. When asked, but friend, is purification of virtue finally bana without clinging? You replied, no friend. When asked, then is purification of mind finally bana without clinging? You replied, no friend. When asked, then, is purification of view final nibbana without clinging? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then, is purification by overcoming doubt final nibbana without clinging? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then, is purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path final nibbana without clinging? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then is purification by knowledge and vision of the way finally bana without clinging? You replied, no, friend. When asked, then is purification by knowledge and vision finally bana without clinging? You replied, no, friend. When asked, but friend, is finally bana without clinging to be attained without these states? You responded, no, friend. But how, friend, should the meaning of these statements be regarded? Friend, if the Blessed One had described purification of virtue as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If So here we see what he is beautifully, eloquently uh, saying what I was trying to say as far as if that was it, then the Buddha would have said purification by virtue or by view is it. Let's go home. It's done. Mission accomplished. We're good. But no, there's still more ways to go. And this is an encouragement to every practitioner. This is not just an incident that happened between highly evolved spiritual beings um, 2,600 years ago almost. And a lovely story, yes, okay, good. But they must have a relevance with our lives and specifically with our practice. The job of a teacher, a good teacher, is always to to dislodge you from the ditch that every one of us will fall into. And the ditch has mud in it, mud of ignorance. And the more the person is there cozying up, playing the scenarios, oh yes, yes, I've, I've experienced this to themselves, even if they don't say it audibly, 
But that mud will crystallize, that will become concrete-like, it will be stuck. That's why the presence of a teacher is very important. To yank us out of it, pull us out of it, and it is uncomfortable at times. So here we have a sutta that talks about never pitching the tent, never settling down until you have experienced Nibbana fully. Because even purification of virtue, that takes a lot of work. Purification of view to get to that stage also takes a lot of work, intensity. The Blessed One had described purification of mind as final Nibbana without clinging. He would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If the Blessed One had described purification of view as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If the Blessed One had described purification by overcoming doubt as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If the Blessed One had described purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If the Blessed One had described purification by knowledge and vision of the way as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. If the Blessed One had described purification by knowledge and vision as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. And now many times uh, people might say, I've seen it in different places where they take knowledge and vision as the attainment of arahantship. Knowledge and vision, which is the seventh purification as being pointed out. But what we need to become aware of is that these seven are purifications. The person is not purified yet if you will. They're taking us closer to Arahantship. However, this last one, purification that is knowledge and vision, are qualities, necessary qualities or characteristics, traits of a noble disciple. Someone we call Seika, who's still a disciple in training compared to the Arahant. Now these are still very important levels 
of course. But knowledge and vision are still the tools that are necessary for the person to get to that state where the defilements, the contaminants, or the asavas are no more. So please bear that in mind, knowledge and vision. Jnana dasana. The person has absolutely a right view, of course. They are very virtuous. They, in fact, they have adisila, adisamadi, adipanya, the higher form of virtue, higher form of samadhi, higher form of insights. But they have not experienced the fullness of it, of where this path leads. Finally, Bana, without clinging, were to be attained without these states, then an ordinary person would have attained finally Bana, for an ordinary person is without these states. I love that he, Venerable Punna Mantani Putta, is, is, is kind of like downplaying all these different stages. It's like, yeah, anybody, any, any, any ordinary person could get to them type of a thing. For him, almost it sounds like if the person has not transcended these and reached arahanship, then he's just an ordinary person. Meanwhile, these are very high-level, um, <laughs> intense energy-requiring uh, levels of, of, you might even call, insight, because they take us there. So these are not mundane states, even the very first one, where the person is practicing their precepts. So we shouldn't, in my opinion, look at what Venerable Punna Mantaniputta is mentioning about this is for the ordinary person. So he's not talking about putujjana, which is the ignorant ordinary person. Ignorant, not necessarily somebody without, without a, a college degree or something. You might have a PhD, but you might still be, the person might be very ignorant as far as putujjanas go. So. As to that, friend, I shall give you a simile. For some wise men understand the meaning of a statement by means of a simile. Suppose that King Pasenadi of Kosala, while living at Savati, had some urgent business to settle at Saketa, and that between Savati and Saketa, seven relay chariots were kept ready for him. Then King Pasenadi of Kosala leaving Savati through the inner palace door, would mount the first relay chariot. And by means of the first relay chariot, he would arrive at the second relay chariot. Then he would dismount from the first chariot and mount the second chariot. And by means of the second chariot, he would arrive at the third chariot. And by means of the third chariot, he would arrive at the fourth chariot. You can tell how the repetition part, it, it can play with our mind and even the reading is it's, it's boring. But they're very important. And something might need, need, be needed to be said about the chariots, the, the relay chariots. 
because the king with his charioteer is going from one place to as far as the animal, the, the horse or horses, the stallions could carry him because of the exhaustion. Saketa is not close to where King Pasena, these palaces. And he, by the way, he was one of the um, uh, greater kings, if you will. He was much more powerful than, uh, let's say, King Sudodana. Um, so, so they're reaching the end of uh, the capacity of that horse or those horses, the chariot. So that, ha that is the reason why he needs to dismount and then jump on the other one. And in the old days, this is how they would do it. Earlier, the scouts would go and let everyone know to get it ready on that particular day, on that, at that particular time. So the horse has reached its maximum point, its destination, and that's it. And the king now has to take another one. Similarly, with these stages of purification. And by means of the fourth chariot, he would arrive at the fifth chariot. And by means of the fifth chariot, he would arrive at the sixth chariot. And by means of the sixth chariot, he would arrive at the seventh chariot. And by means of the seventh chariot, he would arrive at the inner palace door in Sakirita. Then, when he had come to the inner palace door, his friends and acquaintances, his kinsmen and relatives would ask him, Sire, did you come from Savati to the inner palace door in Saketu by means of this relay chariot? How then should King Pasenadi of Kosala answer in order to answer correctly? In order to answer correctly, friend, he should answer thus. Here, while living at Savati, I had some urgent business to settle at Saketa. And between Savati and Saketa, seven relay chariots were kept ready for me. Then, leaving Savati through the inner palace door, I mounted the first relay chariot. And by means of the first relay chariot, I arrived at the second relay chariot. Then I dismounted from the first chariot and mounted the second chariot. And by means of the second chariot, I arrived at the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and seventh chariot. And by means of the seventh chariot, I arrived at the inner palace door in Saketa. In order to answer correctly, he should answer thus. So too, friend, purification of virtue is for the sake of reaching purification of mind. Purification of mind is for the sake of reaching purification of view. Purification of view is for the sake of reaching purification by overcoming doubt. Purification by overcoming doubt is for the sake of reaching purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path. Purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path is for the sake of reaching purification by knowledge and vision of the way. Purification by knowledge and vision of the way is for the sake of reaching purification by knowledge and vision. Purification by knowledge and vision is for the sake of reaching final Nibbana without clinging. 
It is for the sake of final Nibbana without clinging that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta asked the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta, what is the Venerable One's name and how do his companions in the holy life know the Venerable One? My name is Punna, friend, and my companions in the holy life know me as Mantaniputta. It is wonderful, friend. It is marvelous. Each profound question has been answered point by point by the venerable Punna Mantaniputta as a learned disciple who understands the teacher's dispensation correctly. It is a gain for his companions in the holy life. It is a great gain for them that they have the opportunity to see and honor the venerable Punna Mantaniputta. Even if it were by carrying the venerable Punna Mantaniputta about on a cushion on their heads, that his companions in the holy life would get the opportunity to see and honor him, it would be a gain for them, a great gain for them. And it is a gain for us, a great gain for us, that we have the opportunity to see and honor the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta. When this was said, the Venerable Punna Mantaniputta asked the Venerable Sariputta, and what is the Venerable One's name? And how do his companions in the holy life know the Venerable One? My name is Upatissa, friend and my companions in the holy life know me as Sariputta. Indeed, friend, we did not know that we were talking with the venerable Sariputta, the disciple who is like the teacher himself. If we had known that this was the venerable Sariputta, we should not have said so much. It is wonderful, friend, it is marvelous. Each profound question has been posed point by point by the Venerable Sariputta as a learned disciple who understands the teacher's dispensation correctly. It is a gain for his companions in the holy life. It is a great gain for them that they have the opportunity to see and honor the Venerable Sariputta. Even if it were by carrying the Venerable Sariputta about on a cushion on their heads that his companions in the holy life would get the opportunity to see and honor him. It would be a gain for them, a great gain for them. And it is a great gain for us, a great gain for us that we have the opportunity to see and honor the Venerable Sariputta. Thus it was that these two great beings rejoiced in each other's good words. Something that uh, sometimes is uh, not very well known is the fact that at the time of the Buddha, when he was still alive, bhikkhus used to refer to each other as friend. And uh, one of the um, instructions given by Lord Buddha at the time of his death to Ananda was, from this point on, he says, after my death, 
monks should not be addressing each other as abuso. Abuso is friend. Instead, he says, uh, the senior monk would address the younger monk by their name or abuso, which is friend, but the younger monk needs to address the other monk who is senior to them as bante, which is a term that he would be also addressed with when lay people would come or, or his own students would ask Lord Buddha questions. Um, they might have used the term like Bhagavan or, or um, Blessed One or Buddha or, or Bhante. Bhante is the simplified version of, of a teacher, a reverend sir, venerable sir, etc. So that's why it's, it's like a small, um, you know, footnote. So this is, as you noticed, is a, it's the first time that they've met. Uh, they had, um, uh, they would be meeting later on, uh, um, uh, perhaps maybe once or twice in their lives. But uh, before, um, yeah, but, but I don't want to talk about other side things at the moment because I want to address any questions you might have that this sutta, this delicious sutta has, has, has uh, you know, brings to us. Um, so your thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Greg. Dante, thank you for your teaching today. We, you've spent during the reading of the sutta, referenced a number of times, uh, Kondanya and the Chakapavatadna sutta, however you pronounce that. And uh, I was reading an article yesterday that said that the suttas, and we're talking about structures of the suttas, so we're in the repetition, which is why this is in my mind, that the sutta is really a condensed version of the teaching that was, in most cases, determined after the actual teaching was, teaching was given. And the reference was using, as I said, the Chakapavatana sutta, the first turning of the wheel, where Kondanya became a Sotapanna and that teaching was actually given over three days and Kondanya became a Sotapanna the first night, but the other four monks who were there took some more time over the next two days, they all became Sotapannas. So the teaching was actually given over a period of, period of three days and the Sutta that ended up is a condensation of that teaching and that's where the repetitions added. So really it, we should be looking at suttas as condensed versions of teaching and that repetition there is to reinforce that, the things that we need to know and, and, so that, and to help us to learn them. So we shouldn't really be looking as, at suttas as literal records or, or records of literal trans, of conversations mm -hmm. there it's something made up as a teaching and we should only ever look at them as teachings is that something that you'd agree with yes to a great extent uh, because 
we had to go back to just, just mnemonic devices that the Buddha utilized. Uh, one of them being uh, the number system. Uh, I had one uh, professor years ago, um, decades ago, <laughs> Uh, his name was Ananda Guruge, and um, he uh, would always say uh, how the Dhamma or Buddhism um, is a religion of numbers. Well, that's, that's one uh, aspect of what you're describing also, the way I understand it, is because people did not have writing system. And how can you get a teaching that's so complex multi-layered across to the next village. We've all played telephone growing up. And depending on the person, the carrier, or the person who even picked up what he picked up from the, even if the Buddha actually whispered it in his ear, which the Buddha never did actually, he would say it out loud. Um, so everyone could hear even if the person actually heard the, the words of Lord Buddha, they might actually corrupt it, not with bad intentions, but simply because of the human proclivities or weaknesses, shortcomings, etc. Now, when we add to this uh, the uh, different dialects that were used, I haven't even touched upon the time, if you go to India right now, already in this 21st century, there's so many dialects. And the words that we get today in, in Pali canon are in Pali. Well, many people used to, I used to be, I used to love debating, uh, arguing on this point, you know, being a scholar, this and that nonsense stuff, uh, that, you know, the Buddha talked in Pali. Well, he didn't. He, he talked in a certain um, a dialect that was closest to what we know today as Pali. Okay. Why? Because it resonates better in the common people, the ordinary people who were not part of the Brahmin class or the Kati or Kshatriya classes, who had the only access to Sanskrit. They would not understand those, but they would understand the Pali. So it was in lovely compartments in the suttas. So the repetitions are extremely crucial. Now, coming back to your point of, of, is this the actual freeze frame of what happened, what took place? Well, of course not. But you had to do it in a way where today in Myanmar or Burma, when they have these uh, exams, where bhikkhus have to sit down and for months take the examination that they had been preparing for for decades since they were maybe seven in having memorized the entire Nikayas and their commentaries in some cases. And they're sitting in front of a panel of Mahateras, elder monks, scholars themselves and one person would start a sentence from the suttas, anything that he might pick out of <laughs> a vast thousands of suttas, and then stops. And then this bhikkhu has to go ahead and continue from where he left off. 
And another bhikkhu, another tester, examiner, might go ahead and say something and say, what comes prior to that? What was the sentence being said here without any clues? And I think the person has about uh, seven or 11 mistakes allowed in those seven months. <laughs> so if you have something that's more in a narrative way presented, it would have easily been lost in my opinion um, versus uh, um, packaged nicely. Now, even that is not sufficient sometimes to really get to the authenticity of what it is that we're dealing with. That's one of the reasons why textual analysis is, uh, is a very important field of study so that we can actually look at the other factors playing a role in the culmination, in, in, the, in the sculpting, if you will, of what we're looking at. And um, the Buddha preempted this by pointing out how his teaching addresses two things. He teaches Dukkha, and the second is the way out of Dukkha, the ending, cessation of Dukkha. So whatever suttas we're looking at, they need to have these two crucial elements. And any sutta that sticks out like a sore thumb out of these, um, um, they're usually called 84,000 suttas, but they're not that many, it's just a number. Um, if you have one sutta that stands all on its own, where you don't see any reference to it anywhere, neither in the Dhamma, in the suttas, or in the Vinaya, which is another form of the Dhamma. It's a, it, it, you can actually you know, triangulate in a sense. If it's not found in either one of these, then guess what? It is not Dhamma. It was added. And yes, even in the Theravada, Pali Canon has several suttas that are very shady. So it's not a matter of we just blindly take whatever is said, but we have to have a somewhat of a solid understanding as to what are the rough materials for us to be looking at. So yes, so for the sake of preserving them, some elements have to be clipped, trimmed from the edges, which uh, to my understanding, because I love stories, and that's how I used to teach uh, even science subjects, because I noticed that it would restfully um, find its way in the mind of the person, the brain of the person who's totally unfamiliar with these principles. But because of the stories, because I believe it has something to do with the right brain that looks at relationships of what's being said, all of a sudden we have a better grasp of things. And that's another reason why I've decided to, a few years ago, to start this process of looking at whatever's available today, uh, using the Pali, and also using some of the available English language uh, translations of the suttas. And there's a lot to be said about the translations available. And so I have to go back to the Pali constantly, but that's not enough. It needs to be and this is the other aspect of your question that I'm trying to answer or comment that I'm trying to answer. And that has to do with the personal practice of the individual translating it. It's crucial because these were words that were carried over 
but first instigated, first said by the great teacher. For what purpose? For philosophical undertakings, for philosophical activities? No. To add, accumulate more data? No, 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 no. They were simply there to help the person understand, realize what's happening, which is dukkha, and two, to break free from dukkha. So it has to be applied in the person's life, the person who happens to be a human being in this case, through practice. So that's one of the reasons why I um, can openly say I'm not a fan of scholars or the, at least the scholarly approach to uh, even writing books on the suttas, as suttas, and selling them. With, where I see translators being extremely frugal with their space when it comes to the actual translation of the sutta, meaning they use the cleaver of their whatever judgment and take out chunks of the suttas and throw it out, putting those dot, dot, dots, but never shy away from adding pages upon pages upon pages upon pages of footnotes where they can share their thoughts on the sutta. To me, that is doing great injustice to the Dhamma, which separates the person who actually picked up this book that they paid $65 for back in the 90s, early 90s when they came out to read. And it's like, okay, I'm lost now. What, what is this? So I have to go back look up the footnotes, which oftentimes don't even address what was being said, because the person was simply a scholar, not a practitioner. So that is the third coordinate, the practitioner part of the uh, reader. Basically, it needs to be practice-oriented, because these were meetings where human beings came together and valuable teachings were imparted. And to your point also, Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, he wasn't there from day one, uh, as you might know, but he came in later, but he had to get some, um, he had to be convinced. He had some conditions from Lord Buddha, who happened to be his cousin, by the way. So the Buddha wanted him, Ananda, who, by the way, had an impeccable photographic memory. And you see this all throughout the suttas, even in the commentaries. And even his students, who were there present in the second council, a hundred years after the Buddha's death, would attest to. So Venerable Ananda, as part of the condition uh, to become the Buddha's attendant, asked the Buddha, several things, so different conditions. One of them was for Lord Buddha to go ahead and repeat for him the sutta before retiring that day. Not to leave it the next day, but that day. So he had to hear it again to confirm what he heard so that he could, if you will, download it in his brain. And to also ask questions from the teacher himself. Because so many times, 
the, the Buddha was not there when Ananda was being asked a question and he was a very social or sociable monk. So he would meet a lot of laity, royalty, courtesans, queens and kings. So many times he would be asked questions and he needed to know that the words that were coming out of his mouth were the actual words. That's where we get the word or the phrase evam me sutang in the beginning of suttas, many, many suttas. Thus have I heard, or this is what I personally heard. Who is saying those words? Venerable Ananda. When is he saying this? In the first council, which took place three months after the Buddha's demise or, or death. So he was the one who kept on uh, reciting the suttas one after the other. And uh, of course you had some of the other bhikkhus who were there to kind of officiate. But the one that we know uh, for sure that was set entirely and officiated by um, him was Diganikaya, which is the long discourses. Then we have the Majjhimanikaya, middle length from which we get the Ratnavinita Sutta. Uh, he also was the one who said them, but Mahakasapa, who presided over the whole council, was the one who was like the go-to person to kind of validate. Um, yes, 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 that's correct, that's correct. And then you get to the Anguttara Nikaya, which I've heard um, teachers say in the past um, uh, that it was validated, if you will, by Venerable Anuruddha. And then obviously the Vinaya Pitaka, uh, the code of discipline the, uh, the, for the monks and bhikkhunis was done by Venerable Upali. Um, he was uh, by profession was the barber along with the other uh, princes who came in and took uh, um, uh, ordination and uh, out of courtesy for posterity and to set a lesson, I guess, for the class system all the other princes decided that Upali would be better if he would be ordained first. Now they had to respect him, even though they came from Brahmin or Katya class, warrior classes, and they were very proud people, Sakyans. So that they wanted that. So anyhow, that's a side note. But I hope uh, I was able to answer your um, comment. Uh, other thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, KK. Um, I just want to articulate uh, a visceral, uh, appreciative uh, response and then ask a question. I actually tried to listen to the, the because Nareen so kindly sent it to us. So I was trying to listen to it before the session. And I have to say, it is so helpful to have you pause and then talk about it as opposed to just listening it from beginning to end because then it's really hard to follow everything but you made it so clear by pausing so I just really want to thank you for that and you started the, the session by saying that today is a special day and it is really a special day for me because um like you, I love story. So when I try to do the practice, having not read a single sutra, it's really hard to sustain. But I think now with your helping us to, to understand the sutra, so it's a promise to myself and to you, starting today, I'm going to make both learning about the sutta and practice my priority. So that is the response. My question has to do with 
um, the relay metaphor in, in, the set, uh, in the sutta. If it is a relay and you have to get to one thing before the next thing, then does it mean that it's actually not helpful to try to do several things at one time? Do you really need to kind of get to one point before you get to the other point? So that's the question. Thank you. Um, actually, you're addressing several things at the same time. However, it is, so it has both um, an organic feel to it, but it is very intentional. And intentionality for me, it does denote a certain element of linearity, directional in a sense. So this, we talked about the purifications um, that a, a practitioner needs to go through in order for them to get to the uh, destruction of, of, of craving or clinging or the asavas. But we can easily substitute it with the Eightfold Path. When I first uh, started on this path, um, I, I, I would think that the Eightfold Path uh, is, is very much uh, incrementally done. Let's say it's like school. You go to kindergarten and then you graduate from that. So you're now in elementary. And then you go one, you can't skip unless you've proven yourself worthy, et cetera. And then you go to the, you know, uh, secondary and high school and then college, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very linear. That is not the case here. So we need to be careful uh, that to, to look at this in, in, in a way where um, while the person is working on their virtue, they're also addressing the five hindrances, which is purification of the mind. And they're also getting closer and closer to knowledge and vision. So, but you need a map. You need a map. So uh, when I teach meditation students, when a student comes or when I'm asking questions in interviews, I'm looking for certain signs. I'm looking for their behavior. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for their responses to situations that they're familiar with in the past and how well uh, or how much are they transformed in a sense or are they? What is this? This is the map. Why? Because it's a roadmap. It takes us from one, one place to the next. But at the same time, you are addressing other aspects of the training. I hope I'm able to uh, address your question. Excellent. Yes, Russell. Uh, yeah, thank you, Bhante. Um, uh, my comment is uh, kind of superficial. Um, you had mentioned the, you know, uh, one of your teachers had uh, talked about uh, Buddhism by numbers. And uh, actually, I found this, I happen to have this chart, uh, Buddhism by numbers, one of these little things, uh, you know, they, they do it for the sciences or math. Mm -hmm. And I, have, I was first exposed to the concept, uh, I was helping in a Buddhist summer camp on the East Coast and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was there and he he handed out a little sheet. I think it had 20 numbers mm. and, you know, it had various, uh, 
it was, you know, kind of similar to this little chart, but, you know, he used it because uh, most of the audience was children. Uh, but <clears throat> still, um, I'd like you to, um, I'm wondering whether you can just elaborate a little bit on, um, on this kind of number aspect of, uh, you know, is it uh, kind of a, an aid to, to memory in a, when there's no writing or, or does it also show some kind of, uh, not progression, but you know, as you get, the numbers get more from one to say 108, there's kind of like, by the time you get to 108, uh, there's a lot to remember. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just curious. That's why my question is a little bit, you know, maybe off the wall, but I'm just curious about it. Uh, it's an important question. Uh, I'm, first of all, I'm so grateful for the Buddha to have come up with these formulas because I'm very bad with memory with dates. I mean, in history, I would really score badly when it was talking about which era, which day, or what, what kingdom, this and that. So I would ask that my teachers in, in high school, uh, whether they were going to ask questions like that, uh, because I didn't care for those. I cared more about the human element. What, what was the story? What happened? So I needed to put a, a human element, a face, a muscle, something on them. But these numbers that in regards to the Dhamma have allowed me to understand eventually the relationships, let's say, between these different various principles, Uh, let's say uh, the Four Noble Truths. I mean, initially I had a hard time memorizing therefore, but I really have a tough time with memories, especially when I first started. Like what comes after Dukkha? What 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 was what what was what's the origin of you know how many are they? How many like well they're four. Okay, what's number three? So there there's four. Okay, so I can just use part of my single hand, just one hand, and be able to grab the whole thing, understand the whole thing, wrap my mind around the whole thing. So in that sense, uh, of course, it's a mnemonic device. Mnemonic device means you use whatever. Uh, let's say I used to have, uh, you know, I used to teach science and my students would have a difficulty memorizing the colors of the visible light spectrum, which happens to be very, 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 very slim on the chart of electromagnetic waves. We go from gamma rays, which are the most deadliest and shortest to the radio waves, which are the longest and they're harmless. But in between there's this one, the microwaves are there, etc. But visible light spectrum, well, students were having a difficulty memorizing it. So it was a lovely device to come across Roy G. Biv. Roy G. Biv. What is that? Well, I wrote it down and, and it wasn't my thing, by the way, I found it somewhere. It said, Roy, you can think of a person's name, G like the middle name, Biv like their last name. Roy, R means red, O means orange, Y means yellow, G is the green, B is blue, I is indigo, and V is violet. There you go. 100% of the students got it next time. So it's a mnemonic device. 
Now, coming to how important that might be in the Dhamma, other than this uh, element, uh, whether it's the relay chariot or it's the 12 links of causal relations or the numbers are vast. The Buddha laughs at this also. Um, I mean, what I mean by that is it's really not important, the numbers, um, when you take it out of context as to why he utilized this method, this formula. He wanted understanding and wisdom to develop in the mind of the student, period. It, he really didn't care how many numbers, this or that, whatever. You have an ex excellent example when... Um, one day, Venerable Ananda is visiting a householder. I believe, uh, I forgot the name, but he was a woodworker. He was a carpenter uh, and who happened to be uh, knowledgeable on the Dhamma. So they're discussing Dhamma and they come to the point of, of feelings. They're discussing the types of feeling that their teacher talked about. So the person says, well, the Buddha talked about, I think the number he gives is like 18 or something. And Venerable Ananda insists that there are three. So they go back and forth, back and forth until finally they say, well, you know, who's going to solve this problem is, is the teacher. So they go to Lord Buddha. And Lord Buddha says, yes, you are right, Ananda, and turns to the carpenter and says, you are right as well. And Ananda's one eyebrow goes up and is like, what? He says, in other places, I've mentioned that there's not just three or nine or 18 or 36. He goes all the way up to 108 and things. He says, what does that mean? It's like a tool in the hand of an artist or, or uh, a person, like um, a teacher. A skilled, versatile teacher is someone who will take anything that's happening in the world and weave it into the topic that is being uh, addressed or he or she is trying to explain in the classroom, making it more relevant. And in this case, the Buddha also had to consider posterity. Will his teachings um, disappear? And one of the ways that you can kind of put some precautionary measures that it is protected is by doing numbers. But in about four or 500 years, 600 years already, you had Mahayana come and there were other things being added or taken apart. And then later on Vajrayana came and more things were added and taken apart. So uh, obviously it gets corrupted and contaminated as the centuries go by. So now we are still lucky that we still get a semblance, if not the fullness of the teachings in their original form, however they might have been. Uh, can we 100% guarantee that? Absolutely not. Even if we had a camera on the Buddha, go to pro, you know, go, go pro on his, uh, we still would, somebody was, would come and say, well, that's not 100% scientific because we, don't, we weren't there with him 24 seven etc cetera, etc cetera. so we can nitpick this thing to death but how is that affecting our progress so let's come back to what is at hand so in that sense numbers are only as useful as uh, or important as they are useful rather
in helping us be on task. So I hope that addresses your question properly. Thank you. Other questions? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I think that concludes today's um, session, but I, uh, <laughs> I think I might've mentioned last time, uh, I keep adding more suttas. So I, um, and, and depending on how it flows and your progress, et cetera, I have made some changes and added a few suttas and I'm, I keep adding more. Um, so for next time, um, I would like us to address, and I will ask Dhammadina to send you a copy of this, of course, prior, but I can just tell you now. It is a very important sutta that is, uh, it's one of my favorite, favorite suttas ever. Uh, and it's, it's very powerful. Uh, uh, and it's called the Pachalayamana Sutta, which is the dozing off. That's what it's called, dozing off, falling asleep. Um, and it is one that Upatissa is smiling, laughing actually. Uh, <laughs> it is the one that has uh, this encounter between uh, Venerable Mahamogallana and Lord Buddha. And it is from the numerical discourses or the Anguttara Nikaya. Book of the Sevens, and um, I don't know it by heart, but I just remember it because I finished it yesterday. So it's uploaded on YouTube already. So it's uh, Anguttara Nikaya Sutta number, uh, from book seven, Sutta number 61. And it's uploaded, and you can, of course, use um, other sources as well. Um, so that will be the next one. And uh, in this sutta, Venerable Mahamogallana is struggling past being a sotapanna and he's meditating and his head keeps drooping. And it's a very human, human, I think all of us could relate to uh, that and, uh, and how the Buddha comes and helps him. But there's a crucial element of the sutta that often is not looked at where Venerable uh, Mahamogallana is so practical, he jumps in and fishes for a tiny little short brief instruction that is almost like pocket size that one could go to and just so easily accessible, if you will, that could take a person straight to Nibbana. And he asks this question, is, Bhante, is there a way like a very short, succinct, brief way that guarantees that defilements and the asavas are destroyed and one could reach the highest goal. And the Buddha says, yes. So that's, uh, that's the sutta that I want us to address. That's why I wanted to make some changes on the list. So they're very uh, organic. So uh, let us then dedicate uh, the merits of today's practice and uh, sharing of Dhamma. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. 
May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the achievement of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, Bhante. It's great seeing you all. Be well. Uh, practice, practice, practice. And the suttas are there for your support. And one of the reasons why I'm recording it because the body fails and I know my eyes are failing and, um, and, and, and reading might become harder and harder for us as we age. Um, and, and the accessibility of listening to the suttas to me is becoming more pertinent and helpful uh, for posterity. And um, so that's why I, I, I would encourage you if you can't read or don't have the time to read, please listen, listen as often as you can. There's a vast library of suttas now. So be well and um, stay safe and keep smiling. Thank you so much, Bhante. Bhante, Bhante you, you asked me to remind you about your talk tomorrow with the IBMC. Oh, yes. Thank you, Damadina. So tomorrow uh, I will be giving a sharing some Dhamma uh, on Zoom again on um, IBMC. Um, and it's the same link if you had it from last time. The password is IBMC, no spaces. And uh, it will be 11 a.m. Los Angeles or Pacific Standard Time. So please bear that in mind. I don't know where you, each, there's several time zones here. So <laughs> if you can join, otherwise it will be, excuse me, recorded and uploaded on YouTube, usually in a very short while. So be well practice. See you next time.